if I'm a Mercedes fan and I'm seeing what's happening right now, I have tremendous hope. They are there or thereabouts with best of the rest with a car that if it is a Franken car, if I'm being honest, and will be to the end of the season. We are just over a week into the Formula One summer break. I'm sunning it up in Vienna, and we decided to bring a slightly different F1 tech flavor to this week's episode. Prior to the Spa Grand Prix, I sat down with two F1 experts to unpack Mercedes' season so far from a technical perspective. We cover questions like, why did Mercedes stick with a zero pod concept for so long? What has been the significance of McLaren's current and Aston Martin's earlier success on the Mercedes team? And what is going on with Formula One's knowledge pool? The first half hour may seem a little negative, but as the chat progresses, you will begin to see so many more positives within the work Mercedes are doing this year. My name is Balve Baines, and welcome to this very special tech episode of the Silver Arrows podcast. And to help us do all of that, we have Matt Trumpets from the Mist Apex podcast. Matt, it's so good to have you on our podcast for the first time ever. How are you doing? I'm given the time of morning. I think I'm doing reasonably well for a person of my advanced age. You're 21, Matt. Don't let anyone tell you any different. And also (laughs) we have, as always, Tom Fletcher, F1 engineer. Tom, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Good to be back. Uh, Feeling a bit better this week after my uh, my bike accident. (laughs) Um, yeah ready to go let's let's do this let's do this so just for everyone who's listening we are recording on saturday 29th of july so we haven't seen the spa race so that's the frame reference of time of where we are now so matt let's go to you first you want to talk about the zero pods at the start of the season so why has that been such a massive issue for the Mercedes team. Yeah, well, the thing I think a lot of Mercedes, and I just, this is from watching people posting on social media. The point that I would make is that fundamentally, the chassis they brought to work with the zero pods is not 100% going to work with what we're, I guess, we can we call it their B-spec, their, po- their actual pods, <laughs> their 1.5 pods? I don't know what we should call it. But at the front of the car, they were able to make sort of significant changes to the wishbones. They moved them in different places. And, you know, they've been working a lot around with that. But because of the nature of the Formula One regulations and the cost cap, it's my personal belief. This is my theory now. I've not actually heard from anyone on the team or anything like that, that I think they're fundamentally compromised this season at the back of the car. So we're not going to get 100% of the performance of that B-spec because they're always going to be somewhat compromised with their setup options at the rear of the car. And just to contrast it, uh, like you could take a look at McLaren, which showed up, and I think they basically brought the chassis for their B-spec, which we saw show up in Silverstone. And they were immediately looking, everyone's like, wow, what a huge step. But don't be mistaken. The thing about Mercedes they've always been very good at is optimizing what they have. And we've seen that seasons in the past too, where they had quote unquote more diva cars. So it's not that I think Mercedes is not going to be competitive and occasionally be best of the rest, or maybe even by the end of the season, pushing on occasion as Red Bull development tails off, but that you can't expect sort of a McLaren-like renaissance from them 
until we get to next season and they can bring a chassis that is fully harmonized with the aerodynamic concept they're going to bring to the table. Yes, I I just want to second that for Matt. Um, I know there's been a lot of development in in the front suspension and they've managed to do that in quite a cheap way by um, effectively replacing one component by the pedal box to to give them that anti or or increased anti-dive of the front suspension. Whereas if you look at the rear of the car, you're going to have to look at changing the entire gearbox casing, which is a really expensive component, which is which is why maybe they haven't been able to go down that route, for example. But I think the the zero pod so um, the zero pod concept does work in theory, and I think it's probably something that was driven by a a, a technical director that was more theory based than one that was more of a practical engineer so to speak and then they've run into a lot of problems with with this with drag um, not being able to control the tire weight properly and also to get the floor in theory the floor works very well with the zero side pod because you end up with a a large stagnation of air over the top of the floor um, compared to the faster moving air under the floor which gives you a bigger delta um, in in pressure leading to more downforce in theory, it works very well, but without the, the floor ceiling that you're going to get from running side pods, um, you end up having to lock the car down very low um, to make sure that that pressure doesn't escape or, or, the, or the positive pressure to then fall under the floor again, and then you lose the downforce that you're generating. So that then led them into this problem where you know, the car's going to be, have to be very stiff, has to run very low to the ground. You ended up in this bouncing uh, and porpoising issues, and then you end up compromising the slow speed because your car is now stiff. And I think that they have now taken the best measures they can to, to, to get better in the in the slow speeds. But then obviously now, because it's such a an aerodynamic formula rather than engine-based, they're going to have to start cutting the drag from the car. It's going to be a long road, but I think next year, maybe with a revised chassis, they can then uh, implement all the parts that they're, they're generating this year and, and, and improving on, and we might be further up the road next year. Yeah, I think that that really harmonizes with my view. In particular, it's it's the the ride height. I think that they're limited at at the back width and possibly also, as you correctly point out, the fact that any ground effect platform needs to be run very stiff in order to be effective. But problematically, you also need a lot of compliance on the curbs in order to extract maximum lap time from your platform. So what is interesting is to see the extent to which some teams are being able to solve this. And and I just I'm looking at the fact that at the back of the car, Mercedes is very locked in because of like, you know, where the mounting points are for the engine, as you mentioned, the gearbox casing, where they've decided to mount the side impact spars. All of that has an effect on the aerodynamic concept they can run. And I think they might know what they want to do, but literally the budget doesn't exist for them to bring a second chassis to let them do it. So I'm just saying maybe if you're a Mercedes fan, and obviously we all here are Mercedes fans, just temper your expectations. Understand there'll be tracks where your where your team will do very well, but there'll be some tracks where they literally can't get into the um the window for optimal performance and it's just going to be limiting the damage um and i wanted to ask did you did you ever hear of willem tot's uh supposition that one of the big problems was the rolling road in the mercedes wind tunnel leading to them thinking they could run at a right height that wasn't actually available in the real world yeah absolutely um i think again that that sort of emphasizes the problem of, of 
them having a disconnect from from reality um, to the numbers that they were seeing, and ultimately it has led them down this this road that, that was actually no good to anyone. So I think they know where their issues are, and they are addressing those issues. So um, for me, it's, it, it looks positive to be honest as a Mercedes fan. Um, I think um, we are barking up the right tree now, and we are making inroads into into the other teams. So. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So where do you think, Matt, it went all wrong. We, you spoke about the ride height. You spoke about in length here on this podcast about the zero pods. So where do you think it's gone wrong for Mercedes? And do you think we'll be able to win a, a race this season in 2023? Um, I, I think really where it went all wrong, and, and you're going to laugh at this, but I think it's very, very true, actually. I think it all went wrong uh, in Brazil. Okay. Until we got to Brazil last season, it was pretty obvious that the concept, the Mercedes zero pod concept was, for whatever reason, don't want to assign blame here, but for whatever reason, it was clearly non-performant under all circumstances. And, um, and, you know, you could mention, oh, the cockpit being far forward. There's a lot of things they did that were very different to the other teams and all of them played their role. But then you got to Brazil and suddenly the car came alive. And I think it just gave just enough ammunition for, you know, what, what are now being called in Formula One, the decision makers, to push to, to say, look, no, we can engineer our way out of this problem if we stick with it. And if we go back, we're starting a season behind everybody else at testing. This may not be the quickest concept, but we've developed it a lot. So we'll be closer when we get when we do preseason and we can continue to engineer the problem till we solve it, especially because some of the issues like with the raising of the um, throat uh, for the diffuser and the floor edges will 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 play to our will play to as an advantage for us compared to other teams. Unfortunately, I think the reality of that and we saw that as soon as the season started was that that wasn't really the case. Essentially, they were just, they were chasing the rabbit. They were chasing numbers they could only get in the wind tunnel, numbers they could only get in CFD, but were never going to be real 
on track. Correlation issues, basically. So to me, that's where it really all went wrong. If Brazil had been the same disaster as the rest of the season, they'd have shown up with an entirely new concept at the start of the year. And we'd be talking about a different pecking order right now. I couldn't agree with you more, Matt. Um, I think <laughs> that those false uh, senses of, you know, we've got a quick car here is just led them down this this route that they really shouldn't have done. And it is weird. I find it weird that, that they had this B-spec car in reserve all this time. And, you know, why did that even happen? I, I just don't, I can't yeah. understand why i, I want to ask you they, a question about that like yeah, you're yeah. you you f1 engineer right yes <laughs> uh, so one of my one of my pet theories like i like to speculate a lot based on what i can find available but i'm thinking there's no way there weren't exceedingly violent arguments about this going into the season you don't you don't go to all the trouble of making a b-spec car unless you're really convinced the person running the A spec is totally wrong about everything. And I'm just imagining there must have been a lot of internal dissension, like, like to, to put it in more fancy words, there, there must have been a lot of arguing about this for there even to have been this much being made public. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as an engineer myself, if, if, you, if you don't believe in the concept that you're working so hard to achieve, why, why on earth would you go the extra mile? You know, it's 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 difficult enough um to to dedicate your life to the sport and then if you're if you're then having to 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 go down a road that someone someone higher than you said yeah this is the best way to go knowing that it isn't um it do, it does take the edge off your performance a little bit and also um inter, introduces this sort of divide and confusion in in the team as well which is is not a neg not a positive thing at all um but i think that's all in the past, though. I, I now see, and, and the whole team is now seeing in, in inroads into into performance. So um, I, I hope that that's sort of left in, in the shadows a little bit, but, but only time will tell. You mentioned CFD as well, Matt. Could you explain what that is and how, in the beginning part of this season, it didn't translate on track for, for our Mercedes team? Well, uh, CFD is is a computer modeling of the aerodynamics of the car. And the simple version is imagine you have a hose and you point it at the car and then you look at where the water goes. Now add a whole bunch of very, very, very complicated math to that and a whole bunch of complicated computer techniques to that. And you've got CFD. It stands for computational fluid design, if I'm remembering correctly. And it's, it's a way of approximating what air will do when it runs over and under and around a surface. And it's cheaper than a wind tunnel. It's cheaper than running on track. But it also comes with a significant amount of correlation that needs to be done both to the track and to the wind tunnel. And if either, the, either of those data sets, the numbers you get, are, are, are off, then what your computer tells you won't work in real life. And I, I think the supposition for the Mercedes issue with the zero pods was that what, the, what they got from the wind tunnel, because even the numbers from the wind tunnel, okay, I'm, I'm going to get, just stop me when you get bored, because that's, that's what Spanner says. He's just like, oh my God, stop <laughs> I'm super already. interested. I want to listen to you talk all day. <laughs> okay, all right, good, 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 good. So uh, even in the wind tunnel, 
it's important to know that the teams aren't allowed to run a full-size car in a wind tunnel, first of all. It's 60%. So your first problem is your air molecules aren't 60% size. They're 100% size. So there's, there's the first thing you're going to have to fix. Here's your second problem. When you run a car on a track, there are no walls. There is no ceiling. But when you run in a wind tunnel, you do have walls, and those walls affect what, what the, the, the data that you get from the car. So you're going to have to make allowances for that. Now, here's another problem. They don't run them on an asphalt roll, road. They have a rolling road that has a composition that you also have to adjust for. And then it even gets more complicated than that. So even just at that, you're like three or four or five fudge factors into numbers coming off of a wind tunnel. And then you take those fudged numbers and you throw them into a computer that is also fudging things because it, even the best computers in the world can't do the math fully to get an exact replication of what happens in the real world. So you've got fudge three or four there. You've got a couple more on your CFD. And they all tell you that the zero pod is going to be like super fast. All we have to do is run it at this right height and we'll have more downforce than anyone and less drag. And then you take it out into the real world and you discover that you can't in the real world run at the right height. Your computer told you you could. And you discover that you can't control the front wheel wake the way that the model told you you could because it takes six or seven handshakes to get to the back of the car, to borrow that from Matthew Summerfield, instead of the one or two or three that the rest of the teams have. So you've got a super fiddly concept that you can't run at the right height you want to get the downforce you want. It's more draggy because your front wheel weight continues to interfere with the downstream progress of the air. So especially when you're turning, you get highly unpredictable behavior. And then, oh, by the way, to make it all work, you put your driver basically all the way up on the front axle and they hate it to boot. So is that what porpoising was the year before? Would that be, is that something, have that happened from the CFD? You raise an interesting question. And, and Tom, I, I actually, I want to, because you're an engineer, I, I've had this discussion before. The teams all seemed more or less surprised by the fact that there was porpoising, even though we had a previous era of, of ground effect where porpoising absolutely was a thing. And I'm just curious, like, like hindsight is twenty twenty, and I'm not an engineer, and I'm definitely not going to pretend I'm the smartest person in the room. But it seems like to me, if you know, if porpoising is a known problem, and you're running a model, and you don't see any hint of it, you'd think someone at some point would be like, well... Can we just keep on changing these numbers till we see this behavior? And when you're running a ride height that's an inch below the asphalt, you know, like, like you keep on raising, keep on changing the ride height and you don't see the behavior, it seems someone at some point would go like, well, maybe, maybe we need to figure out what's wrong with our model because at some point we absolutely should see this behavior. It's a known effect of this aerodynamic regulation set. You see, I, th I think the problem is that it's such a complex problem. They had some of the best guys working on it, and, and none of them could actually simulate it properly. I think they got very close, but you know, it's, it's meaningless data, really. Um, and to throw that back at what we're saying about CFD and the wind tunnel, things like bumps on the circuit, they're, they're not included in, in particularly on, in the wind tunnel. Those are the really the things that can trigger the porpoising. So not only do you have a, a rapid con contraction in the in the, the size of the uh, the floor tunnels, um, which leads to a, a choking effectively, 
So I, I should explain that basically the speed of air can only accelerate up until the speed of sound. Once it reaches the speed of sound, it can't go any faster. So if you have a, a diameter of a, an orifice, as that gets smaller and smaller, the air speed will tend towards the speed of sound. As soon as it hits the speed of sound, it, it cannot travel through the tube anymore. So what happens is you get a build-up of pressure in front of the tube, which is effectively what's happening. To throw that back to, to the bumps, I think what, effectively what's happening is, is you, get, you, you induce that um, higher pressure in front of the, the tunnels, which then begins the porpoising. Once you're in that porpoising oscillation, you can't escape. It's, it's basically suck, release, suck, release all the way down the straight, which not necessarily is an issue. Um, it's very uncomfortable for the driver, yes, but the main problem is is when when it comes to applying the brake pedal when the car's doing that, it's very difficult to optimize the brake pressure to to make sure you're you're at maximum braking efficiency. Also, it doesn't give you the confidence when you start to turn the wheel into the corner. And then on top of that, if you're if you if it's happening in the in the high speed corners, you're gonna have grip, no grip, grip, no grip, and, and it's just not not an effective way of of, uh, of racing a car basically so to cover your point about why it wasn't simulated i think it just is such a difficult thing with many many different causes so not only just the, the the volume of the the tunnels but bumps on the circuit yeah things like the macro of the tarmac uh, i think you made you made a point about the the wind tunnels also having uh, one surface effectively but you have to appreciate that there's this thing called a boundary layer, which is um, if you imagine the road acting like sandpaper, pulling car, um, pulling air under the car. Uh, the, the thicker it is, the, the bigger the boundary layer is. So, um, effectively, you're 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 losing volume that way. So, yeah, all of these different factors of uh, are influencing the porpoising, and I don't think they actually knew what it was that was triggering it. Only that they, you know, had to get the car up higher to stop it happening. Really. Yeah, it seems to be the thing, again, with the FIA removing some of the floor edge is definitely um, helping uh, reduce the, reduce that issue. But having said that, we are beginning to see it in, in Mercedes this weekend. I've, I've noticed Lewis bouncing quite a lot uh, down down some of the straights at Spa. So um, I think it's something that we just naturally see with um, ground effect cars, especially without uh, adaptive suspension as well, um, uh, maintaining... A constant ride height that you, you're uh, happy to keep the tunnels at. Basically, it'd be interesting to see if the FIA ever do decide to go down the active suspension route and maybe kill some of these issues we're seeing. But for now, it's it's a case of just managing the ride height as best you can um, in the known parameters that you're comfortable with, um, and, and then trying to stop the, the choke point effectively of the of the tunnels. Yeah, or they could have just let them use a, a mass damper that would also solve the 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 problem of the bouncing, which we see on other cars too. I think any car that's really performing well is going to suffer from some bouncing because essentially you you don't have hydraulics, so you can't use hysteresis to to damp that in the same way that we did previously. Hysteresis is just like you know resistance to change, basically. So in the old days, you could set your bump and your, your damp rates differently so that if you got into an area where it's, it's like, imagine a, a diving board, you know, you see when they jump on the diving board, it goes boing, 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 but it eventually stops because there's a set amount of energy. Well, in your Formula One car, 
because as you mentioned, like you have this choke point, every time you get to a choke point and the car bounces back up, you're adding energy back to that cycle of bouncing. And the FIA could have given them mass dampers. They could have given them ride height controls. They, they could have given them a lot of things to control it. And I think they're talking about this to an extent for 2026. But basically they said, here, have a car on a, on a bunch of springs and good luck. <laughs> good luck making it work. And so far, all the teams have worked it out to a point where their drivers can, can drive now. You know, people's eyeballs aren't being bounced out of their heads anymore, which is good. But I don't think any team has fully stopped that bouncing behavior. I, I was going to mention what you said, Tom, about I, was, I saw Lewis's car at Spa sort of bouncing up and down. So I'm glad I'm, glad I'm not the only one who noticed that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we've talked quite negatively on this podcast so far. So Matt, I'm, I'm a positive person. I, I love positivity. So what have Mercedes been adding to the car that is working really, really well? Well, everything. I mean, you know, we haven't seen the whole spa weekend thus far, but what we've seen of it, at least with the uh, downforce package that Lewis has chosen or has been chosen for him, because I'm not really sure how that process worked in the team. Uh, the, the car is very competitive in the conditions we've seen so far. They're clearly they've they've worked out a lot of the drag on the car. Their top speeds are are now getting much closer to to Red Bull and Williams, the the slipperiest of the cars. And they're no longer so far off in the in the sections that require higher downforce. I really like the new side pod. I don't think it's the finished version of the side pod. I think they're making sort of baby steps along the way, stuff they're most sure of. But the new side pod shape, I, I think, is a good step for them. And clearly the front wing um, that they brought uh, to Silverstone, was it? Was that the new front wing? Um, ha- has been very performant as well. And I think in general, you underestimate Mercedes at your absolute peril. As I said, they, are, they have years of experience engineering less than perfect concepts to, to extract every last drop of performance. And you asked earlier if they could win a race. On sheer pace, if, if Max wasn't in the race, it's possible at some circuits they could, but 
I think for everybody, Max is the issue to solve because he's clearly got some pace that nobody else, and that includes his teammate, has right now. So it's going to take something happening to Max, be it a penalty, a backmarker, which is, of course, what ruined the McLaren perfect season back in the day. It's going to take something and it's going to take a stroke of luck to put them there. But I think there are absolutely tracks and times that, barring Max, yeah, they could easily win a race. A new gearbox, maybe? New gearbox? Just a little <laughs> bit of bad luck at the start. And, and, you know, I mean, look at the bowling balls we had at Hungary multiple times. All, all it's going to take is not starting on pole and one person missing their breaking point, And suddenly it's a different story at the front. You mentioned, Matt, about you don't think the side pod is the, is the finished version. So could you talk a little bit about the detail of the new side pod shape that we have for this race and, uh, and the last few races? Okay, we're definitely getting to an area where I'm <laughs> slightly less of an expert. But what I know from reading people who are very knowledgeable about this is that they've, they've improved the downwash element and uh, specifically of the side pod side pod and they've changed the undercut to work better with the floor so some of the air is going over the top and being directed down at the back of the floor some of it to help get the air moving out of the diffuser and some of it to 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 clean up the inside of the rear wheels because when you're going around turns those those tires look very stiff, but they wobble like jello if you look at them in slow motion. And that wobble sends air in the diffuser and makes it less efficient. So you're always looking for ways to keep that what's called tire squirt out of your diffuser. And and a, I think a higher downwash, which is we've seen the rest of the grid go this way. So it's not a surprise. We're seeing a lot of convergence. Everyone realizing, oh, this re this is the best way to deal with the problem. But then you've also got um, the undercut and the change in that shape there. And that is being used uh, with the top of the floor. And especially like you see all the wrinkly things and stuff like that. Those are all specific aerodynamic gadgets. And they're all aimed at pushing the wake of the front tire out of the way of the back of the car where all this cool aerodynamic stuff needs to be super efficient because that wake from the front tire is what is going to cause you the biggest problem when you get to the back of the car if you can't control it. Yes, yeah, it's a really interesting shape um, of the side pod. Uh, I don't claim to be an aerodynamics dynamics expert, but uh, for me, with with basic concepts, what we're seeing is a, a new sort of indent in in the in the side pod, which is effectively causing an expansion, which would suggest to me that that's slowing the air down over that area of floor, making sort of like a stagnation of air. So almost going back to towards the zero pod concept, where you've got um, you're, you're trying to slow the air over the top of the floor rather than accelerating it um, to seal the back of the floor. But to me, it looks like they've gone sort of half and half. They've gone. A bit of floor ceiling as as that then that constriction then closes at the side. The expansion opens up and then closes at the back um, to to fire some more air at the the diffuser and and maybe seal the back of the floor a bit better. But also for me, I think 
they're, they're big they're taking big steps in in trying to cut as much drag out the car so i think this is more of an update to the cooling package um, and getting the, the cooling to work more efficient efficiently so they're saying that they're they're able to now run less louvres for a given uh cooling level which is very important because yeah we saw it at hungary they were struggling with with pu temps and that's probably because they know that they're having this that drag issue so they're trying to trying to maximize or, or run as close to the line as they can to the cooling efficiency which is causing them issues particularly in traffic so yeah a really interesting shape i think that's going to help with extracting some more downforce from the floor as well as keeping some of that floor ceiling at the back um and and ultimately and a step forward in more efficient cooling, which is very important. So one thing I want to add to that um, is I'm so glad you brought up the cooling because this is traditionally an area that Mercedes seems to not quite model correctly, especially in places like Hungary. They, they always tend to be super borderline. And that's because the more you open up for cooling, the worse your aerodynamics get, the more draggy your car gets. But the other thing I think I would like everyone to understand about how side pods are being used now is that one of the major features that got taken away from the cars with these new regulations was that whole area where the barge boards and all this furniture was at the front corner of the car behind the front wheels. And all of that was used to send the wheel wake outward. So I think what we're seeing with this side pod design, you mentioned the stagnant air too. I think they are trying to use the side pods essentially like the barge boards used to be. So the, you see these big, huge bluff bodies right at the start. And what they're doing is they're literally trying to take that air and use it to shove the front wheel wakes as far outboard as they can get. Now, the whole point of these regulations was not to let them do that. And that was to make following easier. But the teams know there's a huge amount of performance to be gained there. And I think that's why you're going to continue to see sort of the shape of the side pod develop throughout this whole regulation set as teams get more and more clever trying to find time by defeating the FIA's intent, which is always kind of some of the fun of watching the car design to me is seeing how the teams get very cleverly around the rules they're supposed to be following. Yeah, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there, I think, I think, particularly with the wheel, wheel wake. And it's something that I, even though not, not being an expert in aerodynamics, it's almost like when you see them roll out the zero... That's okay, I'm not one either. <laughs> when they rolled out the zero, pod, um, zero side pod concept early on, you thought, if you've got the space there, why, why aren't you using it? You know, it's, it's, it just seems a bit crazy. But yeah, all, all in hindsight, of course. But... Um, yeah, that's the way it goes. Hindsight's always a great thing. And talking about teams getting cleverer, uh, Tom, what is the significance of McLaren's current and Aston Martin's early success this year? And how do you think that will aid Mercedes' 2024 car? Well, I think what we're seeing here is maybe the sliding scale in aerodynamic testing coming into into play. I, I think it's it is, it is working. Um, obviously. Uh, Aston Martin had the whole winter to to develop their their aerodynamics with 100% of the the ATP allowance, um, which has seemed to have given them a big step. I know some some of that's down to um, maybe some of the, the the knowledge pool moving over to to Aston Martin. I know they, they picked up a few Red Bull engineers here and there, but yeah, I think with that extra extra ATP allowance, it's it's allowed them to take 
little steps or have allowed them to develop over the winter maybe a bit easier than than someone like Mercedes. But yeah, I think every every step that they take, and I think the, the Mercedes are going to be looking as well at, at those steps and what's what's been brought to the car, what's working, what isn't. Uh, we've already seen Aston, they've brought some updates in that haven't really worked. And I think uh, they were talking today about, about how they those those ideas haven't worked and, and how they need to, to uh, develop in, those, in in other areas to, to allow those new updates to work properly and and how and as as intended same same for McLaren they they have taken a huge step in in comparison to everyone else on the grid i mean i think mercedes have been surprised not not only mercedes the whole the whole field has been surprised um, with with their progress and it's interesting to see how similar they they look now to to a red bull car for example um and i think that's going to ring alarm bells maybe to to Mercedes, I still think their their aerodynamic efficiency is much better than we think, uh, just because uh, they may be running a slightly wetter setup this weekend. I know they're, they're a long way down the straight, but because one of the main things they've got an enormous rear wing on the car, um, just because they and I think they they think the race is going to be wet, so they're, they're trying to shovel as much downforce on the car as possible. But yeah, like I said, I think it's going to be lessons for Mercedes and and. That they have engineers and they have camera crew checking and taking images of all of the updates that, that teams are bringing. Uh, they probably know better than anyone what what their then other teams' updates are and and what's going on in the car and how it's helping. So yeah, it's just all those and how much how much they can extract and 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 see the progress that those teams are making and and what what their interpretation of it is and and can it help them which which will be the, the deciding factor on, on on how much it impacts next year. We'll have to wait and see. Mercedes have always been a, a team that tends to go their own way and think they know better. But I, I do think that they could learn from, from other teams uh, this year. Well, one thing that I would want to add to that is that uh, certainly, I think, Aston, and I'm not sure about McLaren, they use a Mercedes engine and a lot of the same general rear end shape of a Mercedes. So if they're getting more performance out of that, and I'm any, any engineer at Mercedes, I'm like, well, hmm, maybe we could just like use their homework, see what they've done, and then figure out how to apply it to what we want to do. It's an enormous advantage for them that other teams take their gearbox, take their power unit, and mount them in the chassis because essentially that's just free development for Mercedes. Yeah, they have more CFD time, they have more wind tunnel time. We can just look at what they do that's successful and save ourselves 80% of the hassle um, in terms of understanding how they got there. And then, then we just apply that knowledge with our more limited time. We, 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 they're weeding out a lot of um, ideas for us by being successful with this one. A lot of things I don't have to look at more than just the talky draw a picture on a piece of paper stage, which doesn't cost you anything in your limited testing time. You both made some great points, but Tom, I just want to pick up on something you said about the F1 knowledge pool. We've got engineers moving to and from Mercedes, but result of those moves, Tom, is, is yet to be seen, which is very, very frustrating. Yeah, it's like anything. There is a lag time to these things. Um, but as an engineer myself, I know that uh, you you begin learning in in, in the lower tiers of of, of the um, of the teams, um, and then you 
gaining on those things that worked well and, and you can see how, how the team's progressing, you generally, you're always looking to improve yourself um, and the team's become less important to you uh, and you're always looking to take the next step, which might be crossing into another team, for example, for, for a higher um, a higher tier in that team. So it's something you can't control. It's always it's always going to happen. You're going to have engineers jumping across teams, particularly as, as I find with myself is that if you're working for a team that's winning all the time, it's it's great. It's really, really good. But you start to get bored because your input isn't really helping as much and you might see a team that's struggling and you, you go over there, take the higher job um, and then start to progress the team. You get satisfaction in that way. So yeah, it's it's a thing that's naturally going to happen. It happens with any kind of job in, in any any in any case it's very useful to the sport i think because not only just just by regulations in, in aerodynamics and in engines we've got a knowledge pool moving around keeping all the teams balanced and i think it, it, it will add to the to these teams coming closer and closer in the future i just hope that the fia don't change the rules around as frequently as we do maybe in order to allow that to happen naturally. Uh, well, I, I'm about to enter my old man yelling at clouds on his grass <laughs> phase here. Shaking the fist. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have uh, seen an increase in the length of gardening leave. It's pretty spectacular, and especially for employees, and I think understandably from a team's selfish point of view, you know, you, you've seen it project three months, six months, I, I think some of them 12 months. And, and now we had like Red Bull suing Aston Martin to demand the employee not start counting gardening leave till the end of their contract, because that's a baked in advantage for the team the engineer is leaving. So, so if, I'm, if I'm Mercedes and I'm like, yo, Adrian, come work with us. And Adrian somehow says yes. Not that he's actually the driving force at Red Bull these days, but let's just use that as an example. We hire a senior engineer who, un who has a complete view of what's working on the team. Like you can hire a junior engineer, but they might only understand the right front corner because that's what they've been working on. And they won't know some of the other tricks. And by tricks, I don't mean illegal tricks necessarily, but clever things the team is doing to extract performance. You want to hire someone who's got enough of an overview that they can help progress your car more rapidly. If I hire them at a minimum, it's 18 months before that person's ideas have any effect on my car. And if the gardening leave is long enough, it's two full years. Well, I mean, we're already talking about new aero regulations and new power unit regulations in 26. That's half, that's half the regulation set gone before I can even begin to catch the team who's baked in advantage, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to surf off. And the thing is, always in Formula One, knowledge moves around with engineers from team to team. But as we've moved into a more corporate era, that knowledge movement is becoming increasingly restricted. And it's not necessarily a surprise then that you have these long periods of domination that only start to crack at the end when either team has literally just had enough lottery tickets to get something right. Or eventually the people that have moved on from that team, and we saw it a lot with Mercedes, the power unit engineers moving over, and then two years later, suddenly Honda has an engine that 
works really well and is actually possibly better than the Mercedes power unit. It, but it takes too long. As fans, and even as fans of a particular team, if your team is ahead, I can understand you want to bake in that advantage. But if your team is behind, you don't want to suffer through three, four, five seasons out of a six-season regulation set waiting for that knowledge to filter to your team so that you can have a driver that might be in the points or might have a chance to podium or win a race. I think the whole sport suffers from it, quite frankly. And I would dearly love it if the FIA would set very specific and very short gardening leave periods so that if I hire someone at summer break, they're working for my team as soon as the season ends. You can start to see some influence after the next summer break. By the following season, their full-on influence is there, and they're making a positive contribution to the whole design of the car. That was my rant. No, it was a good rant, and your Rocky Adrian reference hasn't gone unnoticed, so we do appreciate that here okay. on the Silver Arrows podcast. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, Matt, what's, what's the, I think the big question is, what's the solution? You mentioned the FIA stepping in. Do you think that's the only way we can fix this garden leave talent movement within our space it's either that or it's going to be um the idea of gardening leave itself being found illegal in certain countries that f1 participates in and maybe having an influence that way i know there's some tech sector lawsuits in the united states about gardening leave um i'm not sure the eu stance on it but it wouldn't be the first time that big issues like that and other sectors will wind up affecting F1, I I would think. But I think the short term is, unfortunately, the rulemaking process includes the teams. So if I'm, and and this this all, by the way, comes from an interview that Franz Toast gave like two or three years ago. He talked about this issue. It was one of the, it was, it was them or Sauber. I can't remember which team principal it was. But if I'm a small team, I, I want those people immediate immediately helping my team. I mean, you look at the difference to Aston when that Red Bull engineer was finally able to deliver a car that they, that they were driving the concept of. They were immediately like, wow, no one, no one saw a step that big. We've seen a similar step now uh, with McLaren. So these things are possible in these regulation sets, but the more tightly the leading team locks down its knowledge the longer it takes for anyone to show up and be an actual competitor. And so, yeah, I like the FIA to do it, but the reality is Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull for sure are going to say no. And as we've also learned about the politics of Formula One, well, Mercedes has three people they supply power units to. So I'm sure Toto might have a word with them quietly. And, and so you don't, you're not going to see all of the teams necessarily voting purely in their self-interest because part of their self-interest is power unit supply and, and support from teams, from the big teams, even still. So the reality is the FIA would have to get half the teams on board and then get FOM to also go along with it for that to become a rule. I like to see them propose it. But I don't have any great hope that they actually be able to get it through the F1 commission right now. It's definitely a good point. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, we've, we're near enough halfway through the season, and we know Mercedes are once again building for next year. Tom, from what? you've seen do we have hope for next year in 2024 yeah i I do think we see hope we know that the car has been struggling in the slow speed um all this time um until recently the 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 updates that they brought to uh, monaco they've identified where where the car has been weak and i think it it's also part of lewis being involved in the discussions and and deciding the trajectory of, of where they're going to end up and how how what characteristics they want from the car um, is is bringing out the areas of his driving that, that puts in a cut amongst the rest of them. Um, so, for example, some of the um, long radius, slow to to mid speed corners where you're trailing the brake in the car seems to be incredibly good at, at uh, combined loading. So, trailing the brake in while steering, um, and and that area is, seems to seems to be where Lewis tends to be a lot stronger particularly than Russell, maybe. And they are homing in on that area, unfortunately for Russell, I think. They're trying to trim some of that that drag out. So now we've nailed the slow speed and and the the lower end of the medium speed. They now have to focus on on the high speed, whether they do that with introducing bigger wings or or trying to increase the downforce that the floor is giving will, will d- dictate how well they do effectively because what you're trying to do is is achieve the, the biggest drag to, to lift um, coefficient so in simple terms making making the car as slippery as possible for a given downforce basically so giving you more more straight straight line speed for uh, effectively high speed corner speed and that's the area they need to focus on and i think they are doing that with these updates we're seeing you know with with updates to the cooling everything that they're doing is seems to be focused towards drag reduction unfortunately their their rear wing at the moment is a bit strange i can't quite understand what's going on there a little bit um my main reason is that verstappen in um, in quali, we we saw in in the actual quality of the race on Friday when they were allowed to use the DRS, he had so, so much more speed than Lewis Hamilton down the Kemmel straight. But now in the Saturday's qualifying, where we weren't allowed to use the DRS, we're seeing that the Mercedes is actually quicker in a straight line, and that's down to to the shape of the wing and particularly the the slot or the the second element of the wing being a lot smaller on the Mercedes, whereas the main plane seems to be of the of similar thickness to um, Red Bull, but Red Bull are running a, a larger second element. And it, it, I just find that a bit weird how Mercedes is using, generating the downforce, but through the main plane of the wing rather than using the, the second element. And I, I'm not quite sure what the reason is behind that yet, but um, that appears to be where they're losing maybe some of the DRS efficiency, um, which, is, which is really interesting. But all in all, I think... The, the development they're doing now is is all key for next year. Those updates are, are going to translate to next year with then the added bonus of being able to redesign the chassis in order to link all of those parts together is going to really help them. And, and I have a good feeling, if I'm honest. I've, I've previously been a bit upset and a bit, a bit down with and, and lost a bit of faith maybe about how they're bringing updates to the car, but 
now as we go on them bringing these updates consistently now to each race we're seeing we're seeing steps in the right direction and i feel a bit more confident in, in next year anyway well if you ask me um and, and i am i am an expert at hopium and copium <laughs> so so you know take this with whatever size grain of salt you like but if i'm a mercedes fan and i'm seeing what's happening right now i have tremendous hope they are there or thereabouts with best of the rest with a car that if it is a franken car if i'm being honest and will be to the end of the season they are finding enormous amount of learning with having to optimize what they've got on track and it's going to lead them to know what they need to do which uh, frankly they've probably i'm almost certain have started the design process they're probably well into it and everything they bring and evaluate on track will inform the choices they're making for the following season and with the compromise design they're still quite competitive and clearly as tom pointed out one of the things that they have relearned is that it's useless to have a car that's three tenths a lap faster theoretically that is so unpredictable your driver only drives it at 80 percent because they can't trust it in the high speed or the low speed or frankly any corner they don't know what it's going to do so they're tentative but that three tenths slower being driven at a hundred percent will yield better results so one thing they've done is they've they've focused on giving the driver the confidence they need to extract whatever the maximum level of performance is from the car. And then the other thing they're doing is they're just being very ruthless about where is the car weak? How can we improve it? And, and, and I agree with Tom, the most interesting thing to me and the thing that I would look for most would be a complete redesign of the balance between the, the upper element of the rear wing and the main plane, because it's clear Red Bull derives an enormous amount of efficiency from operating the DRS that Mercedes does not. And it does seem like sort of a very low-hanging piece of fruit for them at this point. Matt will speak afterwards. I'll buy some hopium off you. I'll definitely need some for this, uh, this season. But it's always a pleasure to speak to two people who are a lot more smarter than me in this F1 space. And it's definitely the case here on this podcast of the Silver Arrow. So Matt, Tom, as always, an absolute pleasure speaking to you both. Yeah, thank you, Bev. Really enjoyed that. Thanks. And that's all we have time for this week. A massive thank you to Tom and Matt for joining us. Their social media handles are in the show notes. And thanks to you for listening. Do remember to follow us on Twitter at MercF1Pod and hit that follow button in your podcast app. If you're enjoying these episodes and feeling extra kind, drop us a review and share this episode with anybody you think may enjoy it. We're going to take a few weeks off over the summer shutdown, but we'll be back in your inbox very soon. 